Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent, Como Hotels and Resorts, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. I'm joined by the author and travel writer Bridget Delaney, discussing her most recent book, Wellmania, Misadventures in the Search for Wellness. That comes on the back of Wild Things, her debut novel on the campus of a privileged university where students engage in racist bullying, pack mentality, and the closing of ranks. Wild Things followed her very first book, This Restless Life, churning through love, work, and play which you can probably guess from the title, is ripe for The Wandering Book Collector. Bridget, welcome. Thank you very much, Michelle. Great to be here. Firstly, Bridget, congratulations on Wellmania's next iteration. It's being turned into a Netflix comedy drama series in Australia, right? Yes, it's very exciting. It's just been announced. So um, it, it's a non-fiction kind of memoirish book about my travels in the wellness industry. Um, but Netflix have picked it up to turn it into a fictionalised account of a woman uh, called Liv Healy, played by the highly successful comedian Celeste Barber. And she's a travel and food journalist based in New York. And catastrophe happens and she's sent back home to Australia and she gets a, a bit of a health scare and she has to turn her life around. So um, it's it's probably going to be shown Netflix worldwide towards the end of the year. Uh, we're filming at the moment in Sydney and it's so exciting. Well, how does it feel though, the book becoming a screenplay and then morphing onto the kind of the silver screen as it were better, worse, too different to compare. Way too different to compare. Um, they're completely different beasts. A lot of my DNA is in the kind of character and the concepts, but a whole new team of writers, uh, directors, Celeste herself, they've taken they've taken sort of the DNA and made it very much their own. And um, I'm excited about the project. I think had it just been a, a very kind of um, literal interpretation of the book, it, it it wouldn't have that broad appeal um, that a, a big Netflix um, dramedy would have. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased. Dramedy, that's the first time I've actually had that pronounced. <laughs> it, it's, um, it will make you laugh and cry, I think, is the dramedy, is the dramedy um, kind of definition. Back to you and what's going on for you. Firstly, where are you? I'm in the country, as you can hear from the cockatoo. <laughs> um, I've got a place in central Victoria, which is is in the, is in the countryside in the goldfields. Um, and I come here to write, and it's a, it's. <laughs> we just we had this funny conversation in the preamble, which I said, "Is it going to be quiet enough for this recording?" And and Bridget said to me, "Except for the birds." And I was thinking, "Tweet, tweet, Twitter, Twitter." No, they're proper Aussie birds. Um, they're very loud. They're very squawky. They're kookaburra now. <laughs> um, so it's it's about an hour an hour and a half from Melbourne, 
and um it's lovely it's a very old i mean a for australia it's very old um 1860s miners cottage and i'm working on my next book which is a book um based on stoic philosophy so the the greek and roman stoics i will come back to that it's your home Mm. deeds are in your hand yes for someone who hasn't always lived a life where they've had bricks and mortar around them I wonder if you've got that restless feeling going on right now um I don't I'm not here a, a lot um so I've incorporated having a house into my itinerant lifestyle so it's listed on Airbnb um and particularly I mean Australia's had closed borders for they've just reopened but for pretty much two years, we couldn't travel at all um, outside the country. So it became a real haven. Um, but when I was traveling a lot, working as a travel writer, um, it was a great place between trips to decompress. So I'd fly back. It's on the, the side of the airport. Um, so one hour from the airport, I'd come back here, sleep for a few days, and then I'd be off, do my washing, and then I'd be off again. Um, and the pandemic um meant that I had to stay here and kind of get to know it in a different way and appreciate it in a different way and um, be a bit more connected to the community, which I wasn't before. Um, but look, I'm always keen to to head off after a few quiet weeks or sometimes days here. And I wonder if you miss a destination as it were, or, or is it this itinerant lifestyle? Is it the kind of way of life that that you long for when you're when you've got longings I didn't long for it as much as I thought I would because I think after decades of relentless traveling my my body and my spirit needed a break um and in that break different things kind of move around different things fertilize um places become less uh transactional so you know I was doing I think the year before the pandemic, I did 10, from Australia, 10 overseas trips is a, is a lot of travel. And I appreciated when I couldn't travel the amazing places I've been to. So I was able to work a bit more in memory and um, looking at photos that I hadn't looked at for years and remembering things. And, and I guess churning less through place and more kind of revisiting in my mind and I'm ready to return to travel again. For anyone who doesn't know your first book, This Restless Life, you wrote it a dozen or so years ago back in your mid-30s and it details you having had a hundred or so jobs from waitressing to paralegal work to selling pies um you yourself you've been a lawyer you've been a recruitment consultant a journalist and you've moved between australia as you where you are now but um london new york berlin and so on even if it has given you pause it's a very different way of being the sedentary life i i missed meeting new people and i missed meeting people from different cultures like that that was a big gap, you know, it's the friendships I've, I had in lockdown in these places deepened, but I didn't get that fantastic injection of, of raw excitement when you are, like I did a great trip, 
with a friend who'd been living in Myanmar and we went into Shan State and we were sleeping on the floor of barns belonging to local farmers and, you know, drinking whiskey with them at night. And that's the sort of thing that I really miss, you know, just connecting with people from completely different ways of life and also like experiencing the generosity that you often experience when you're traveling. I've experienced a lot in Asia, you know, particularly around Asia, just some incredible people. So I, I really missed, I mean, I really missed Bali, bizarrely. I didn't think, <laughs> it's surprising what you missed, but Bali is a place. You were, I, late. You were a latecomer to Bali too. I was a latecomer to Bali. I didn't get to Bali until my 30s. Spent my 20s in Europe and the US and then Bali in my 30s and really, really liked it. And uh, used to go twice a year and now um, it's the first place I'm returning to when borders, well, now that borders have reopened. And what is it about that island that has captivated you? I think it's like you have this, you have a couple of streets or a, f- a few areas where tourists go and then one street back, it's completely intact, really interesting um community life where religion and offerings and ceremony is at the heart of, of, of that life. And it's, um, so it's kind of hidden in plain sight. There are all these wonderful ceremonies, rituals, processions that wind through the streets, different sort of holy days. And um, the Balinese kind of weave it sort of through, um, through their everyday lives. So you can be you know, doing something touristy, but you you take one step back and a, a whole other world opens up. Um, and I love that about Bali. You did explore, I know in Wellmania, that the idea that a global recession could put the brakes on us. Of course, it's been a pandemic that shut us down. It's thinking about, you know, what can be gained from a pause in the frantic life. Do you think you personally will get a better or different balance moving forward and and do you think they're like the memories of this this time for a lot of the people you know will kind of there'll be enough of an echo so that we check and balance ourselves and how we in how we choose to live and travel going forward absolutely I mean I think we've had a we've had a really good um shake of the stick you know we've we've traveled a lot in our time um but I worry about the younger generation who didn't have the gap year, didn't have, um, like, Australians, it was a rite of passage to go in your 20s and spend at least a year, you know, travelling around with a backpack. And there's a whole group of people that didn't get to experience that travel in your early 20s where you live on the smell of an oily rag, you're eating um, a baguette under the Eiffel Tower, you've, you've spent five euros or however many francs and you know, you're really under budget, but you're having the time of your life. Um, And there's a whole generation of young people in Australia that haven't done that trip yet because borders have been shut. Um, For myself, I think um, I love the friendships um, from travelling. And so my kind of um, goal when I get back out there is to reconnect with some of the, the, you know, particularly friends in London, um, friends in Italy, uh, I've got friends in Beirut, you know, seeing those people again um, and also exploring their neighbourhoods with them is is how I want to travel next time. Um, always with a local, like find a local and pair up and, and see, you know, where they eat and um, go out with them. And I think it's a different way of, of exploring a city. 
Um, but look, there's a, a, I'm excited to see what's happened to some places that have been kind of detouristed, like like Bali, like Thailand. You know, have they been rewilded? Have they been, you know, have they kind of been returned to some sort of, you know, state of nature from not having um, millions of people sort of traipsing through? Uh, my last trip that I did before the border shot was Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And the Chinese had been had left by that point. It was February, March 2020. There was very few European travellers and I was with a group of about four Australians and it felt like we had Angkor Wat to ourselves. We were on rickshaws riding around this incredible temple complex and it was extremely eerie. There was no one there, but it was also kind of magnificent. Then, of course, I, I worry about the people that made a living from selling coconuts, driving rickshaws, um, working in hotels. So they were on my mind a lot as well when, um, you know, while I had the jubilation of having Anchor Watt to myself, I also had a fear for, for the people whose livelihoods depended on, um, on tourism. Mm, it's bittersweet. I, I know that feeling too. It's, there are certain places that, that, from a selfish point of view, do feel... Um, there's a magical quality when there's less people, but um, there's other places, of course, that we like the buzz and we like the vibe and we like the mix of locals and tourists. I'm also fascinated to come to Melbourne, one of um, one of the most <laughs> locked down cities in the world, or the most locked down city in the world. I wonder how how that has affected people. I haven't spent a lot of time in Melbourne, um, although I do have family there. But from what I hear, people are partying very hard there at the moment, so it's good. It's like a champagne cork opening. Do you miss also, Bridget, the, the risk-taking that comes with moving somewhere? So it's, it's different if you're just travelling and catching up with friends in London and perhaps getting some commissions to write something in those cities and, and then heading to the next place. But what about upping sticks like you used to um, and planting yourself yeah. somewhere and, and creating a, another home, a, a, finding another community, another job? Um, I think I dream about that all the time. You know, I dream about certain places. Like I had, I lived in New York for a little while. I'm not, I wasn't there for long enough. I was there when the exchange rate was really good and had a great time, but then came back for a job. So there are sort of a lot of places. I'd, I'd go back to Berlin again in a heartbeat. I'd love to live in London again. So there are lots of places where I think I'd love to have another go at, but also life is only so long. Um, and one of the questions in in Restless Life was, is it better to live broader or deeper and, and can you do both? So when you um, are an expat and you move, you move abroad, you're also, you're making new relationships, but you're also leaving people behind. And that, um, you know, I think there's a cost to that. And also, uh, there's a lot more people doing it now. That's a kind of an other interesting idea because perhaps when you were doing it, there, of course, there was always a diaspora of mobility. And if you were pretty well educated and, and footloose and uncommitted and fancy free, you, you could get work. You could, um, it was less competitive in the sense that you kind of were always on the road. You could kind of jump to the next gig. But of course, there's a lot of people now who've, who've tasted a bit of freedom, um, are used to the idea of working from home or hybrid or remote. And perhaps there will just be greater volumes doing the life that you pioneered writing about it. Yeah. 
Definitely. I mean, one of the interesting things at the moment is I'm reading Seneca, who's an ancient Roman philosopher, and he talks about the dangers of actually almost like a, a globe, being a global nomad. He, he warns against moving for the sake of moving, movement for, for the, the just, you know, to have a new experience. And he says, you know, the kind of version of uh, you can't, you, you, your problems are always going to go with you. So I think um, the global nomad lifestyle uh, is great, but you can't use it to escape something that, that may be not great in your hometown or in your normal life. So I've met a lot of global nomads um, in the last few years, particularly around Asia, and some of them are living the dream, but some of them have a sense of loneliness that I think um, isn't great for well-being. So it's it's how do you find community when you're on the move, and how do you how do you have a sense of place when you're a bit placeless? Like they're questions that that really interest me. But I also admire people for having a go. Like I think, you know, staying in one place and not traveling because you're too scared that you mightn't meet people or find friends is is not a great way to live either. If you've been addressing these questions for the last dozen years or so, can you give us some answers, some top tips about finding a sense of place? I mean, I always ask for recommendations of friends of friends, you know, who, who you know, I might know anyone there, but they might, you know, my networks might know someone and they might want to have a drink um, or a coffee or something. So it's it's connecting with someone. And then that person may, may know of someone or it's it's sort of working in a local cafe and maybe getting to know. I always find the hospitality staff a really great way into a community. You, you get to know the barman, you get to know the waitress, and then, you know, they might invite you out somewhere. Um, or, you know, I've done a lot of, like, um, subletting or um, house swapping so you get to know people domestically. But look, the journalism community worldwide is really um, well, is always up for a drink, is always up for meetups. So pretty much anywhere in the world there's, particularly in some of the old, older kind of colonial parts of the world, there's foreign correspondence clubs where, you know, you can sort of rock up. And um, I now work for The Guardian and, and that in many ways is a bit of a passport to meeting a lot of interesting people because there's people, you know, The Guardian's worldwide, there's network, you know, all over the world. There, there are different reporters and also Australians travel a lot so there's always you know or they used to travel a lot so there's always accents that sound familiar and because yeah. the, you know, the critics and you yourself when you're being self-critical would say that you, what you lose could be the collective and the community but then if you, you know if, you, if you're you if you have this strong network could arguably just bash off all the critics that say well, you know, you leave, you lose, lose your community, there's the loved ones back home, and but actually you're creating loved ones where you go. Where I live now is a really good example of that, which is like I'm here quite a bit but not enough and my it's a very strong community area and my buy-in here is pretty weak. Like my currency here is weak because I can't be relied on because I'm often not here. So I'm, in some ways I'm a bad neighbour and... Um, I, I feel like you get you get out what you put in. So, um, you know, if if my house was on fire and um, I'm not here, would would a neighbour risk their life to save my house? Well, they might they might arguably say, 
Bridget's not here long enough to rescue our house um, and there's not that, that you know, reciprocity um, that creates really, really strong communities. And in Australia, very recently, we have had natural disaster after natural disaster after natural disaster with people losing their homes and their lives through floods and bushfires and community and people's neighbours helping each other has been crucial you know you can't rely on the government to come in and save you it's it's neighbors helping neighbors so that's something that's front of mind for me at the moment is if I'm a fly in fly out person in my own community um, if I'm constantly traveling around the globe I might have a lot of weak ties um, but you know you do need you do need those stronger community ties actually you don't need them but they, they're good to have I mean I don't particularly have them at the moment but um I, I see how they would be handy but also useful for social change um you know coming together to create you know if if there's like you know they're chopping down all the trees in the local park you know that's where that's where community groups really come into their own but the flip side of that is insularity um not being exposed to different you know different sort of cultures or different like, politics or different areas. Um, so there's joy and strong and weak ties, I think. And how about the, this impermanence and instability seeping into I mean, even more personal life, not just as a neighbour, but into kind of into your own kind of private space? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's very hard, um, like, for example, dating, like if you're never in one place and you're moving around a lot, um, so I've stacked up a whole heap of short-term relationships, um, but longer term, you know, it's it's much harder if no one knows where you are because, you, you know, you're either in one house or the other house, or you're on the road. So, um, look, it's definitely a, um, you know, it, it can definitely affect your personal life, but then you're also more likely to meet really interesting people on the road. And uh, so, yeah, it's a trade-off. And and the landscape for you, Bridget, looking forward, Australia's borders are now open and so many borders around the world are much more porous. How are you forecasting the short, medium term? From, from Australia, um, there is hesitation. So there's this combination of like huge amounts of excitement that we can go again, but that, you know, people have become a bit more afraid of the outside world. You know, they're... You know, new sub-variants springing up. Um, what really affected people's sort of mental state was that the Australian government, for a large part of the pandemic, re- like made it very hard for Australians to return home who were stuck. So people have that memory of, of citizens not being able to return to their own country. At, at one point in time, citizens who were in India were threatened with jail if they came back to Australia. Now, that's a highly draconian um massive breach of human rights and freedom of movement and so people have that memory of not being able to rely on the government if they get into trouble you know being stranded um so personal wealth has increased a lot over the pandemic and Australians are great travelers and they'll want to get back out there but it will it does coexist with this this fear of being trapped somewhere and, and specifically, where do you think you will long for beyond Bali? So I've got various trips planned. Um, I've never been to Beirut, so I'm um, planning a trip to Beirut. I would love to do um, a trip 
um, kind of, I'd love to go back to Myanmar, which is, is very difficult now, but, um, or impossible. Um, there's a walking trip I'd love to do in Pakistan. Um, you know, always love, always love going back to London. Um, love Italy. I want to spend a lot of time on the Greek islands, you know, working on books and island hopping. Um, and when yeah, you're there, and Jen, when you're Thailand, in Thailand, <laughs> everywhere, everywhere. When you're there, and do you think about the house that you're sitting in now at all? No, I don't. I don't tend to think of. Um, I don't tend to think longingly of home when I'm away. Um, I like to be super present wherever I am. Um, I went. I went for six or seven months last year without returning back to this place because the borders were shut and you know I just couldn't get back here um so yeah it's uh you know I've just it's just the I'm now not used to the long flight I'm, I've lost my travel fitness so <laughs> I was talking to someone last night about like how are we going to do our first big trip well we have to fly to Asia first and have at least four days to adjust to time zones then get on the flight to go to um the UK or Europe. Uh, so I think I'll be a massive baby when it comes to, to getting back, um, getting my kind of travel legs back again. And then when you walk back through the door to this house that you're rarely in, is there something tangible or palpable that you, that you touch or that you feel? And, you know, you take a big deep breath and hear a cockatoo or... <laughs> It's a beautiful house filled with books. So, um, you know, it's just, it's such a gentle house with, you know, lovely kind of unpolished floorboards. It's it's two rooms. It's a small house. Um, it's very quiet and it's just filled with all my books. And, um, yeah, I always check if the, there's wine left because often my Airbnb guests have gone ratting through the cupboard and, you know, eaten eating protein powder uh drunk wine uh maybe nicked a couple of books um but look it's a, and I, I subscribe to new york review of books london review of books and the new yorker so I, I sometimes have a stack of like hundreds of publications uh to get through plus all the bills um but no i, I love coming back here it's it's a very peaceful place and yeah i would argue after hearing you speak that the longings much stronger longings and not to kind of get through your front door and, and see all the corks on the ground, but it's much more to <laughs> the other direction. Yeah, it's much more to go away. Um, and it's, you know, I've had to temper the greed, I think. Like, that was a big issue I had of greediness to see a lot of the world and consume it. Um, and the pandemic's taught me to, okay, be, you know, take it in. But what are the environmental consequences of this trip? are you going, you know, for a reason? Is there a purpose or are you just doing it because it's particularly as a travel journalist, you get offered junkets. Um, it can be very easy just to say yes quickly without considering if you actually need to go on the trip, if the story needs to be written. Um, so, yeah, being a bit more mindful, I think, about how I travel and why I travel. So tell me about a bit more about the next book, Bridget, because I'm, I'm already kind of imagining this dinner I'm going to host between you and Seneca one evening. <laughs> <laughs> you banter 
about <laughs> the idea of not being a global nomad. But again, ahead of the curve, choosing a subject like stoicism, we all need lashings of stoicism in this age of COVID and conflict and climate. Um, yeah, let, let, tell us more about what you're writing and where you are with it. So it's, I think it's going to be published in August. Um, I've spent many years on it. <laughs> I'm a novice, you know, I'm not, I, I studied um, a Bachelor of Arts in Literature and a law degree at university, but I, I never did philosophy. So I've come at it, come at it late as a layperson. And just like the last couple of books were exploring, like Restless Life was exploring travel and movement. Well, Mania was exploring kind of wellness and um, also travel. And Stoicism is about exploring, um, I guess, wisdom. Like how do you how do you get wisdom? You can get well, you can get, you can have a great travel experience. Wisdom is a completely different kettle of fish. Um, so the Stoic, Stoics, which I'm looking at, uh, Seneca, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, uh, and they're the ones whose writings have survived the longest. The early Stoics, their stuff's a bit more fragmented um, and has been destroyed. But um, they, these guys are pre-Christian and some of their stuff is just like could have been written today. It's so useful and really prescient and really um, I, I use it every day. Like it's just incredibly helpful. How do you uh, use it? So um, an example might be uh, I, I had a friend come and stay from Sydney in the country and um, I wanted to go to an event with him, but we didn't, we couldn't get tickets. So I was disappointed. Um, and a, a stoic thing about that is, well, you shouldn't assume that, that things are always going to be available. You know, you, you shouldn't. Um, so it's this whole thing of suffering twice. Like you suffer because you don't go to the event, but then you suffer because you're disappointed that life hasn't worked out the way you wanted it to. Um, so you end up being doubly frustrated. And their whole thing is, well, who's like, why should you assume you can get get what you want or do what you want? You know, tickets are a finite resource. You didn't get one quick enough. They have this, um, they have a technique which is used very dramatically in some respects, like um, Epictetus said, when you kiss your child goodnight, you should assume that they're going to die in the night so that you get used to the fact that your child might not survive. So that's a really, really extreme example of a practice they have. It's like practicing non-attachment. And um, I found in the last two years when I haven't been able to do much of anything and a lot's been cancelled, it's been a really good, been a really good personal practice for me. Yeah, a lowering of the bar of expectation. I'm not sure if that would... Well, often it works really well also with travelling. Like, you know, if you think about the the flights that you might miss, um, the hotel room that looked great in the, on the internet, then you get in there and it's, it's covered in mold or, um, you know, the, the experience that didn't live up to expectations, the stuff that goes wrong, you have to develop a kind of inner stoicism in order to not ruin your travel experience. You don't have a sense of entitlement anymore. And I think having a sense of entitlement actually does ruin a lot of things because, you're no longer grateful, um, you lose a sense of wonder, uh, you're more likely to be upset when things don't go your way. 
Is it a manifesto? Is it a how-to, the book? My, my book will be a bit of a how-to. Um, you know, I've modernised a lot of it. But the, the original writings, um, like Seneca wrote this great book called Letters to Lucilius, which is letters to his a friend who's a bit younger that is is life advice everything from um you know living somewhere that's noisy how to cope with noise to you know how to cope um with losing friends to traveling too much you know like because Seneca did travel a lot but he was he was realistic about you know if you keep moving you will you know um there will be some things you'll miss out on at home because you're traveling and if you're at home, there's things you'll miss out um, if you don't move around. So, um, so Letters to Lucilius is, is really, you know, great book written thousands of years ago, um, which still makes a lot of sense. Bridget, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book. Thank you, Michelle. Show. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, Como Hotels and Resorts, Toomey and Ultimate Library. Goodbye.